Youth Radio International Podcast Show. They certainly did not drop reporting or dealing with unidentified flying objects from an air defense standpoint. It's impossible to statistically profile what these unknowns are. Wait a minute, guys. You knew that back in 1947. They constantly contradict their own people. You have Air Force commands, whether it's NORAD, North American Air Defense Command, personnel talking about incidents which they are reporting as specific threats. Hello everyone and welcome back to the UFO International podcast show. After almost 10 years, I am reactivating this investigative show about the UFO phenomena through history and modern times. And my tonight guest is Larry Hancock, prominent researcher in the fields of intelligence and national security. And this time he has a new book that is dealing specifically and exclusively with the problem of unidentified flying objects and military intelligence implications. So we will be here in a minute with our tonight's guest, Larry Hancock. It is an extreme pleasure to welcome tonight uh, Mr. Larry Hancock and because of him I actually, uh, this is why I'm here uh, today, I uh, decided to reactivate my UFO radio podcast show that I started almost 10 years ago called UFO Radio International. And uh, the stimuli, stimuli for that was uh, his press release for his upcoming book, uh, which is uh, titled Unidentified, the National Intelligence Problems, Problem of UFOs. And uh, I, I think I have a good idea what he's trying to capture. And uh, this inspired me so much that I actually uh, wanted to have a good chat with him and to slowly start to release my uh, podcast shows. Uh, and for the beginning, I think the best thing would be to let introduce himself to us uh, so we could see what are his life interests and uh, how he ended up here on this route now to actually release this type of book. So, Larry, the mic is yours. All right, great. Thank you. Um, basically, I've always been interested in history. I guess my my basic interest have been history, uh, things like astronomy. Uh, I've been a longtime science fiction fan. Uh, so I've always been interested in this area as early as oh, 10 years of age or so back in the early 1960s. I was following the subject of UFOs. Uh, I was an early member of both APRO and NICAP. And so I've been interested in the subject for a very long time. But after my career, uh, after my time in the Air Force and my career, and I retired and started looking into history again and started writing about historical subjects. Uh, I've also been always interested in military history, intelligence. Uh, and so I got into doing a lot of work in the intelligence area and have, have written several books related to intelligence, covert operations, different intelligence agencies. And uh, that kind of led me after after the first few books, I began to wonder, you know, I've been interested in UFOs. I've been writing about intelligence and, and military interest. Why don't I put them together and, and try to answer a few questions for myself, as I always do. I, I normally start a book by asking myself questions and then going ahead to answer them with a book. And that's how Unidentified started. Yeah, th that's actually great. And that is uh, one of the things when you start to dig beyond surfaces, also introduce sort of a cultural paradox. On, on the one hand, uh, we have this perspective that UFOs are sort of a pseudoscience 
but on, on another uh, hand we also find these rich his historical sources and uh, rich uh, government involvement with this subject no matter what the final answer is so so i guess it's a it's a really uh, deep and rich subject to uh, research uh, i i'm interested to learn how you are actually starting your book what is the time span that you are covering and what are the first uh, years that you are starting to uh, cover uh, problem of unidentified uh, aerial objects? Well, normally I start this work, and I, I have to say I'm normally, I'm known as a document geek. I, I'm very interested in government documents as the basis for the research that I do and, and kind of have to do that with a historical inclination. So I started back looking at some of the earliest uh, military documents from uh, World War II, uh, from post-World War II in 1946. Uh, so I actually started before the the classic period of the 1947 UFO appearances and, and essentially start, raise the question of how military intelligence addressed this problem before Kenneth Arnold you know, before they became embroiled in the public relations aspects of it that that followed the summer of 1947. So the book actually starts with incidents during World War II in both the European and Pacific theaters and moves on to a series of incidents in Scandinavia and Britain uh, in 1946 and early 1947. Oh yeah, we are, we are speaking about uh, full fighters era and the ghost rockets in in Sweden. Uh, yeah, and when I was also searching through old uh, newspaper uh, articles, and I was particularly at one point interested in this era too, that there were uh, actually quite a few of newspaper articles they are addressing these weird lights they were following pilots during the European uh, war uh, during the uh, Second World War over Europe. Uh, I, I'm interested uh, what kind of maybe uh, documents you were able to dig up uh, in this time, time span uh, or was there any maybe new discovery that you were able to find? Well, there, there, were, uh, there are a lot of British documents. The British were especially good at debriefing their air crews and preparing intelligence reports on the on the breeze. Both interestingly, both the British and the Germans had staff intelligence officers that wrote rather extensive uh, studies of especially the nighttime light phenomena, trying to determine if they were related to any enemy action or not. And those those are very helpful. One of the things I have to say that that occurred to me after I been involved in that a while is there's such a huge disconnect between the nighttime sightings and the daylight sightings. One, one of the things I think that it struck me, and, and perhaps I haven't seen it made that much of, is we've often had the question asked of, of whether good, solid, experienced observers such as air crews, uh, military personnel, whether their observations are reliable. And it's kind of fascinating that early on in some of the Air Force investigations, Rand and some of their advisors actually suggested that they set up tests to determine whether military air crews were competent, whether they would be able to uh, discern conventional objects from unconventional objects if they were unexpected. Well, the thing is, if you take a look at the World War II experience, you already have proof of that because basically Allied air crews successfully identified basically every unconventional weapon deployed in both Europe and the Pacific. Uh, that included both jets and rocket-powered fighters, uh, guided and unguided missiles, uh, the vengeance weapons. They identified them very correctly, described them in daylight sightings, and actually that information was was made available back to combat crews well before samples were recovered or uh, any of 
any of the captives were questioned. So we actually have very solid proof that these people make very viable and accurate descriptions of unidentified objects, even if they have no idea what they are when they're observing them. Yeah, uh, even yeah, th that's I think the great point. Even the need to actually create sort of a unidentified category uh, introduces that the problem was there because especially in a war environment we have to categorize all all these different type of aircrafts of course and so on so so this is really what what is what changed the equation and, and i guess the, the real catalyst started in 47 of course with kenneth arnold sighting that led to official air force uh, projects so maybe we could now dwell into that era well, I, I'll move on that, but with just one comment on the transition from from the American intelligence standpoint, I think one of the most significant things we know now, and this is this is from numerous people that have done great research, and I have to say that the Jan Aldrich, the folks at Project 1947, uh, there just have been a lot of fantastic primary research done, and I, I benefit from that. Uh, that's other people's work, and it needs to be acknowledged. But one of the things that we know now is that during 1946 into 1947 and 48, um, first of all, America's brand-new intelligence group, the precursor to the CIA, and this would be the Central Intelligence Group, Actually, we, we can now see their documents, and we know that they reported to President Truman that a core of the sightings from 1946 in Scandinavia were officially felt to be Russian-based. Uh, they were felt to be psychological warfare activities, but they the Russians were actually sponsoring those activities, and and we know that the American military covertly and the British military covertly uh, participated in a number of reconnaissance and other activities under that premise. And the reason that's important is that also tells us that when the Air Force started its work in 1947 and 1948, and we know from that, that and from the work they did, they absolutely expected that they were going to find the Russians uh, probably using derivatives of German technology behind the UFO phenomena. There was just, that was just the common assumption, and they felt actually that it would be proved fairly quickly. Um, and, and that's a very, you, you need to have that in mind as you start looking at what they're doing from an intelligence project objective, because it's not like they were look, approaching this from a scientific standpoint or just, you know, they had a, a very specific charter, and that was to identify the source, uh, look at it from a threat standpoint, and possibly from an exploitation standpoint. But that, that's a view that I take in the book that, again, comes from the fact that the book is looking at this from a military perspective, not a scientific or a technology perspective oh, oh yeah yeah exactly the, the layer of defense significance is actually i think the fuel that uh, uh, kept all this project in line and i guess the like you nicely said the the science uh, part of it uh, finally had a clash with the uh, Condon and Colorado project in the end because they felt like, well, let's finally try to resolve this with science after all this status quo. But yeah, yeah, that's that's a really nice layer to to emphasize. So, so I guess keeping that in mind, um, um, let's move to this transition now to forty seven and so on. So, so I guess this was still the thought in the background, trying to somehow correlate all all these reports with some kind of intrusion in, into American soil. Absolutely. And, and that you find now that we can see the documents, you find that as a, a very consistent pattern for the next several years, even even in the most negative reports that are, are prepared inside the Air Force. Uh, uh, 
you always find some concern that there may be Russian involvement, that this may be a psychological warfare ploy, that uh, there, there's, that's always embedded, even when, even when they're saying that they, they can't identify them, but there's something there. Uh, there's always that element of concern, and that that certainly grows later on. The interesting thing is that later on it becomes less and less acknowledged, and and I'd like to talk about that later. But it's it's interesting that through the early 1950s, that element of concern is always there and always expressed. But then, as they prove increasingly less able to deal with it, as they as they fail to identify what these things are, and as they fail to deal with them from a defense standpoint, um, that gets lost. And, and I think that's, it's interesting to note and probably tells us a lot about how it faded out of, uh, as a primary focus, because after a certain amount of time, from a military standpoint, from a public relations standpoint, you don't really want to be in a position of explaining that, yes, you can track these things, you can actually intercept these things, but under no circumstances are your best radar defense networks and your best fighters able to do anything about it. Uh, yes, they can intercept them, but they just, uh, they, they engage, but they can't do anything about it. They're always out maneuvered, and I'm, I'm getting a little ahead of myself with that, but it, it's part of the transition in how the service treats it. Eventually, it gets to the point of uh, something rather cultural, which is, you know, if you can't deal with the problem, the thing you want to do is either get away from it or hand it off to someone else. Um, but, but you're asking about 1947. I think one of the most interesting things about 1947, 1948, the early years, is that uh, we see a real disconnect between what the Air Force in particular was doing internally and what it was saying to the general public. Um, in later years, we'll see a, a great disconnect between what different agencies were saying internally and to each other and doing to the public. But there's, there's always this huge, this huge problem that they face in not frightening the public, not wanting the public to be concerned, but going ahead and investigating the subject. And we, we see a, a lot of correspondence internally at senior levels within, within the Air Force about how their investigations must either be essentially either covert or very low profile. In other words, investigate the subject, but don't make it a big deal. The press is making it a big enough deal by themselves. We don't want to encourage them. And that's a that's a theme that we see during the earliest years. Uh, a lot of times there seems to be an expression in the UFO community that or some some feeling in parts of it that the military and, and military intelligence was not concerned, that they they just laughed at this. And we absolutely know that that's not true. They were taking it very seriously. The problem was essentially the problem was that they were applying standard technical intelligence practices, basically conventional intelligence practices that had, that had been used during the wartime to this subject. And that meant dealing with each incident on a one-off basis, one by one, trying to explain each one by itself. And they didn't have the assets to do that, especially in the early years. There was no there was no radar network across the United States. There were, were no interceptor groups deployed. It, it took several years for there to even be interceptors and defense radars in the vicinity of the, the nation's most desperately protected uh, atomic warfare complex sites. It just wasn't there. So even when there were reports, whether they were over – Oak Ridge or Hanford or Los Alamos, there was literally nothing that they could do about them in the first years except document them and, and worry about them to a large extent. 
Uh, yeah, th- uh, this uh, disconnect uh, s- struck me so hard, actually, uh, also in your uh, promotional material for, for your book, uh, is that, that they are uh, taking a look at the cases that are spread through space and time uh, with the spread frequency and not taking into consideration a long-term uh, overall holistic uh, picture. And I guess, uh, uh, of course, and the problem of the, of the phenomena itself was emphasized also when we had, uh, uh, let's say, uh, what they called waves, right? When, when there was a series of sightings uh, under a certain area that so, sort of maybe moved things into certain direction to even give uh, more emphasis on the public relations and how to deal with these cases, which created enormous headache in, in those situations. But I guess also uh, from the perspective of uh, public relation, uh, when the, when we had one-off cases, it was also easier to, to deal with. But yeah, it, it, I, I think that that was a really the, the one of the finest uh, arguments uh, that, that you just made, uh, which creates uh, the deeper problem uh, there. Uh, m- maybe we could talk a little bit more about it, maybe something about the nature of the incidents itself. Obviously, they involved uh, aerial different uh, type of uh, scrambling of jets, I guess, or even the observing the aerial corridors and so on. Uh, and um, uh, also, I-, I guess in the earlier years, th- there was that uh, problem with creating a-, a policy of the public relations that went through the evolution of Sign Grudge and Blue Book. But I guess you, you-, you have really nice documentation and great insight in- into these problems. Well, it, it's interesting, and there are two different things that really stand out to you. Uh, but first, is we have a really good example uh, of of this internal versus external conflict, and how, to some extent, the the intelligence projects even confuse themselves. Uh, as an example of that, the one that really strikes out is we have the the so-called wave of green fireballs. Uh, which I'm sure you're familiar with, that occurred over the Southwest, primarily over New Mexico oh, yeah. uh, in the late 1940s, and largely physically centered over northern and central New Mexico, which housed uh, the Los Alamos uh, nuclear uh, development facilities, uh, Sandia Base in Albuquerque, and basically, if you looked at the heart of the American nuclear warfighting complex for the period, it was largely consisted of the facilities in New Mexico, as well as the production plants uh, at Hanford and, and Oak Ridge. But these these green fireballs were very prominent. They They were seen by a large number of people. They generate a large amount of press. And, of course, a public relations issue because they kept coming and, and nobody could really do anything about them. There were no signs that, that the Air Force really knew what they were. But at the same time that was occurring, uh, after they had started, but but later on in, in that period, a series of incidents became began to occur around Sandia Base and Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque and most specifically about one of the earliest uh, nuclear weapons storage sites at Colleen Base in in Texas. And what was really important about this is that uh, in the Manzano Mountains outside Albuquerque and in Texas, those were a couple of the first two points where we were actually storing the nuclear weapons that were being developed and, and the stockpile that was being built. So if you if you really targeted, if you were really interested in America's nuclear weapons, that's where they were. And Albuquerque began to develop a whole series of sightings in and around uh, Kirtland Air Force Base, but most specifically at Colleen, where they were building a, a storage facility. There were, Colleen was essentially guarded by an army base, so a huge army base. Uh, that was an artillery training base. And Colleen and the the depot under construction 
began to receive an immense high-density series for several months of both nighttime and daytime UFO sightings uh, by the security forces that were assigned to the atomic facility and just by the Army forces in general. These things would show up over the artillery ranges. They would they would cruise over the bases. There were even incidents where troops on security patrol saw them basically at eye level. They would come down and maneuver uh, in and among the security forces. And it was it got to be so so sensitive to the army that the army actually told the air force that you know it was going to use it because the air force intelligence folks didn't even express any interest at all uh in this uh this had moved into a time when they were to some extent trying to avoid the avoid the public relations consequences of being dealing with what a ufo might really be that the army actually created a group groups of trained artillery observers with their equipment with their uh, equipment optical equipment and 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 triangulation equipment and prepared a series of scientific documented observations of these ufos determining what heights they were at how fast they were traveling and preparing a a, a large amount of scientific information that the sort of information the air force always complained about that it could never get and eventually we find that the army submitted this to the air force intelligence project which seems to have totally ignored it it's in the files and researchers have found it but the air force ufo project pretty much ignored the whole thing while it uh grudgingly sent a couple of its representatives down to explore the green fireball phenomena uh, and especially those sightings that were occurring over the military facilities and ended up writing that whole thing off as an atmospheric phenomena, uh, which actually turned out never to be provable. But I bring that up as a very, we have lots of documentation on it. It's very well detailed and shows, shows the extent to which uh, intelligence groups at, at a higher level within the Air Force essentially ignored what was going on in the field, even when the field was creating the type of data that the Air Force had earlier during its Project Sign wanted. Uh, Project Sign lasted for a couple of years, uh, was transitioned to Project Grudge, and the Grudge people who we're doing this, the study at this time, basically just ignored the whole thing. And I, I would say that's another thing that had emerged in my overall study of this. There are patterns. There are patterns that are very clear. And there are patterns that are even noted at different times within the Air Force and within the CIA. But whenever... Whenever push came to shove and they were faced with dealing with the fact that something was going on and they couldn't identify what it was, this avoidance mechanism kicked into play and they just began to refuse to see it. Yeah, and your last sentence just when I was thinking uh, about the next question, your last sentence sort of went into into that direction. I am just was thinking as you were saying, on the one side we have completely let's say automatically normal uh, system of the military that reacts with their own procedures like you said they are creating documents observing the sightings and so on but on another side the channel or, or the reception of this information is sort of not dealing with that in a proper militaristically intelligence way so that of course brings lots of possibilities one of it and i think it's really high possibility too that simply the the system maybe didn't know how to deal with it due to all these uh, maybe unknown parts of the equation so they simply said it's easier to maybe to ignore it maybe the another possibility is that there was maybe some other type of channel where this went through but 
how we can prove this it's again hard to say but but i'm wondering about your opinions on on, on that whole area what do you think was happening there and can can we give high probability that actually was simply better to ignore it because of all this weird situation that was created i i think we can and that was that was one of the things that i was really interested in when i began the book was to was to really answer that question for myself in terms of did the system take it seriously and did the system work? Uh, and if the system didn't work, why? What happened? What could have been done? What should have been done? And essentially my conclusion is that there was basically a system failure. And where that that stands out most clearly is in something that most of us are familiar with, and that occurred at the end of 1952 and going into 1953. And that um, following a series of events on the East Coast in the summer of 1952, and in particular events around Washington, D.C., with a, a series of nighttime sightings there that were very dramatic and, and, and produced headlines essentially uh, laughing at the Air Force because the Air Force just didn't deal with the problem from a defense standpoint. The Air Force had to acknowledge that, well, yes, they had reports of UFOs over the Capitol, and it took them three hours to respond or four hours to respond. And it, from a, a defense standpoint, it is just absurd, and it's not laughable because the, obviously their performance was terrible which was a problem for them. It was so bad that we now know that President Truman actually convened a meeting dealing with the title Defense of the Capitol. We don't know what went on that meeting. Knowing Truman, it probably was pretty lively. But we know that what followed that was the fact that the, for the first time, the Central Intelligence Agency actually became involved. And over a period of months, um, its Office of Scientific Investigation became convinced. And, and we now have the actual documents that show that, so that its, its deputy reported to the director that it had determined this was a national security problem. It was a national security problem based in the fact that UFOs demonstrating totally unknown technology and capabilities were obviously focused on America's atomic uh, warfare infrastructure. And we have a memo from the OSI internally to the director of the CIA that says that. In fact, this even shows up in the CIA's history, which is rather amazing to me that they, they say something so striking that that the OSI concluded we, that we don't have the details of the particular incidents, we don't have the process, but that was their conclusion. And it was actually recommended to the director of the CIA that this subject be taken to the National Security Council and tasked as a ma major national security tasking. Now, where that gets particularly important is if it, that had happened, if it had been handed off as a national security tasking to the specialized groups that did threat and warnings analysis, that did what was called indications and pattern analysis, this would have become something that was studied over a long period of time. The patterns would have been looked at. Uh, patterns are very important. These people don't rely on any individual incident. They look for they establish a baseline. They look for trends over time. This was the, the seminal point at where it could have been kicked up to a level of intelligence analysis beyond the incident-by-incident incident thing that the Air Force was doing. If that had happened, they would have seen – well, they would have seen what I see later on in the book. Uh, but it didn't, and it appears that it didn't happen – it's uncertain why it didn't happen, but very likely it was something very basic in terms of interagency, interservice rivalries between the Air Force and the CIA. The Air Force didn't want to give it up. The CIA was still early. It, it was 
not the dominant agency that it later came to be. And it appears that there may have been some kind of a compromise and that the CIA director concluded there was no way he was going to take this to the National Security Council without having scientific endorsement. That it was not, it was politically not desirable for him to do that. So this led to the creation of what we, we all know of as the Robertson panel, which brought in a team of physicists to look at a subject from a technical standpoint that the Air Force had been unable to solve with technical intelligence. Uh, we know that this team of physicists essentially were told by, by Dr. Hynek, who sat in on part of the meeting, that this team of physicists declared that they were not interested in overall patterns. They wanted specific incidents that would provide irredeemable proof and uh, that something totally anomalous with no other possible explanation was going on. And they didn't get it, and they didn't make their endorsement. And at that point in time, the whole subject never proceeded to the level of analysis that might have told us something. Yeah, uh, I, I guess that was, uh, as you said, it was really extremely turbulent era, and that led up in the end to Robertson panel that and where maybe UFOs finally fallen down from the perspective of the public relation policy that was maybe then established. But I, I just want to quickly, uh, shortly go back to some of the great quotes that you are also making, uh, and I guess they are in the book. For example, uh, this quote from one of the documents, sightings of unidentified flying objects at great altitudes and traveling in the vicinity of major U.S. defense installations are of such a nature that they are not attributable to natural phenomena or known types of aerial vehicles. And this is really, this this quote really shows this, again, extreme disconnect from one point from the strictly speaking of military intelligence needs and procedures. And when we confront this with science analysis, we are, we are finding this, again, great disconnect. And it seems that these two areas, they can never meet in peace. It, it does. And, and the strange thing is we find these disconnects from the very beginning. If, if you go back to 1947 and look at the – and 48 and look at the documents in the Air Force reports, there is no doubt that Air Force intelligence – and these come from the heads of the groups, the, the heads of Air Material Command or the, uh, heads of Air Intelligence. There is no convinced doubt that those individuals were convinced – that their people were seeing something real, that military and security forces were reporting something that was real. Uh, Air Force intelligence created a very well-detailed profile, and uh, what we call a collections document, um, for for people to go out, their people to go out and collect information. And it described uh, not only the physical appearance, but the maneuvering. Uh, there was just no doubt they were dealing with something real. The fascinating thing is that in later years, after we, we passed that kind of gap of the Robertson panel, you see the Air Force uh, touting reports from one of the Battelle, one of their consultants, saying, oh, well, we're impo it's impossible to statistically profile what these unknowns are. Well, wait a minute, guys. You, you knew that back in 1947. Uh, they, they, they constantly contradict their own people. And the field personnel, uh, another great example of that is that when they closed out the final Air Force project called Blue Book, they made a statement that in no instance had any of these reports, UFO reports, ever constituted a threat to national security. However, when I look through the documents and, and some of the quotes you mentioned certainly are in the book, you have – Air Force commands, whether it's NORAD, North American Air Defense Command, whether it's SAC, the Strategic Air Command, personnel talking about incidents which they are reporting as specific threats to national security. Uh, later on in the 70s, you have series of incidents across ICM missile, ICBM missile complexes. Um, 
in what's called the Northern Tier series of events, where SAC even declares a threat condition. Um, you have an incident at Pease Air Force Base where uh, not only the Air Force, but Army Defense Commands track a series of, I think, up to 14 incoming UFOs conducting what can only be construed as a attack, an attack against the Air Force, the SAC Air Force Base. They break off and go away. That, at the time, was considered a national-level incident. But all of those kind of lie underneath this overall public relations stance of we can never really admit this is a threat because we can't do anything about it. Yeah, and exactly since the 1969, the official standpoint was that the UFOs were finally resolved and that there was no effects to national security. And I guess that's now creates an even bigger problem uh, because you can't now turn around from that. It's it's already done. It's finished. And then if you change it, then you erase the whole history of 21 years and spend money to, to spend money that was spent to, to do large Colorado project with physicist Edward Condon with all this huge review that finally had to give the final answer to, to the interested public. And so I guess we are sort of stuck in that uh, hole. And it's really, as the years progressing, it's the, the, the voltage uh, difference becomes higher and, and higher. Uh, I just want to shortly go back to the 1953 um, and of course, there are other great quotes in your book that are really presenting great this disconnect between intelligence and science. But but I'm wondering, what do you think after 1953 was happening? Uh, do you think that intelligence uh, concern was happening uh, now beyond radar uh, in relation to the public relation uh, pol policy, or that this public relation policy was still so strong that actually deactivated any attempt to uh, even find some intelligence uh, solutions uh, below the curtain of the problem of the UFO phenomena. I, yes, I think what really happened is that at that point in time, and as I said, if, if the matter had gone higher and gone to different intelligence groups, it would have been treated differently. But the message within the Air Force after the Robertson panel, it was it was taken to be that, you know, the scientific, we're never going to come up with what the scientific community wants. Technical intelligence is just not going to work. We're, we're not going to identify these things as, as anything other than anomalies. Um, and the Air Force turned around to take very much what you'd have to consider a strictly an air defense approach. Uh, they certainly did not drop reporting or dealing with uh, unidentified flying objects from an air defense standpoint. As a matter of fact, they would continue to conduct literally thousands of intercepts a year during the Cold War. Any Anything that violated standard air control zone, a defense zone patterns, any flight that didn't file the appropriate flight plan, uh, all of those would be queried, uh, as, as the radar network began to grow and get better, as after the Korean War, after we really established a very strong air defense, uh, from an air defense perspective, it remained important. But I think, I think we can capture the whole thing. It, it's interesting. Um, basically, the, re the position taken was you report it. If it appears to be a threat to United States security, the Air Force will deal with it. But the Air Force dealt with it as to whether or not, quite frankly, it was a Russian attack. Uh, that, that was that was the historical context of the time through through the 1950s, certainly into the 1960s. The threat that was the military was responding to was not a threat from UFOs as something alien or uh, the threat was whether or not in each individual report was could possibly relate to 
a Soviet reconnaissance, Soviet attack, and you you see it. You see it in the in the instructions and in the orders. You even see it in the in the popular stories of the time, where the the commanders will tell you that they scramble hundreds of planes and thousands of intercepts because each one of those reports could be the first sign of a Soviet attack. So I, I guess my answer would be it, it's not that they they move the whole subject back from an Air Force intelligence uh, high, higher level analysis to that of being an air defense issue. And it, it simply becomes a part of UFOs become part of air defense standard practices. And for those that don't map, I mean, if you've got a, a radar track at 6,000 miles per hour, obviously that's not the Soviets. It gets put into a file. And so what is collected over time are a series of anomalous incidents that the local field intelligence and air defense can't deal with and that eventually goes into the blue book files. And if the the blue book files, if it can be explained as a astronomical or uh, atmospheric phenomena, they're eager to do that. Otherwise, it will just sit there forever as an unknown. And until the project is closed out, when it's closed out, as you said, by 1969-1970, what you're you're left with sitting there is some thousand to fifteen hundred depending on how you want to interpret them anomalous reports of something that the air force simply couldn't deal with and that nobody else was dealing with and that kind of took me to my the next step in in my own studies and it was like well okay if they never buck this up to the people that do indications and patterns analysis and all they did was build the blue book files, then what would happen if somebody did use those techniques on the blue book files? And that led me to the rest of the book where essentially I attempt at least a cursory study of what could have been done using indications and pattern analysis with that collection of unknowns. Oh, so, so you're actually using blue book data to try from the current perspective and knowledge uh, to actually see uh, we maybe some even modern techniques to see what could be extracted from from this data oh that's that's really uh, interesting then area of the book uh, can you can you give a little bit more expansion of that sounds really uh, interesting way and is this actually uh, uh, the section where the book is going towards some kind of finale it is. Yes, it is. Um, uh, basically, what I did was I stepped back then and and, and went back to uh, NICAP has done a beautiful job. Uh, Brad Sparks has done a beautiful job of of putting those case files online. Other people have the data is there now. Uh, and of course, there also has been some some great supplemental investigation of some of the later decades of work. But yeah, I. I, I personally am familiar in, in my former life and in, in various jobs. I did some strategic planning, some uh, some work that made me a bit familiar with the kind of techniques that are used. I certainly can't claim to be a military intelligence analyst, never was that, but I have some familiar, familiarity with the practices from a business planning standpoint. So what I did was to essentially – do some baseline data analysis looking for trends and patterns. And and that becomes very common. One of the things that becomes, if you look at it year by year, uh, and I started in 1947 and, and went through the 70s, there are some really obvious trends in the types of incidents that occur and where the incidents are occurring. So what I did was essentially go through a series of hypotheses that – the way an analyst should, and and came up with four major hypotheses, and and the first was, you know, uh, the basic basic hypothesis is was something 
something unknown. You don't have to identify it. It's, it's X. Uh, was was there something going on in, around America's, focused on America's uh, nuclear war capabilities? And, okay, I examined that hypothesis. And at that point in time, the, the point is it could have been the Russians. You don't know. You don't want to declare anything. All you can say is somebody doing this. And after you after you examine it and then you reach the conclusion that, yes, someone was obviously doing something and it was tightly, tightly focused and it actually evolved over a period of time, then you start putting forth other hypotheses. Well, if it was being done, was it the Russians? If it wasn't the Russians, let's go further, come up with a couple of other hypotheses. And so that's the the last couple hundred pages of the book as I go through those kind of studies. And one of the, one of the things that becomes very clear is a, a trend in the incidents. And the incidents, A, there were there were lots of daylight observations initially. Uh, when when the UFOs were were actually doing some rather dramatic things. I mean, you have sightings of groups of UFOs moving over Kirtland Air Force and Sandia Base, and what observers say looks like they're actually dogfighting with each other. You have, you know, these are close-range daylight observations. Over a period of time, the, the funny thing is that consists up until the point of where the American air defense networks really becomes real. During 47, 48, 49, into 50, when America literally has no national air defense network, you have a lot of daylight sightings. But as Air Defense Command begins to get its act together, that tapers off. You have more nighttime sightings. You have more high-speed, high-altitude incidents. Um, it, it's as if the better the air defense gets, the more demanding the uh, encounters get. They become high speed. They become high maneuver. There, there's a real trend in what's going on, which led me to raise the question, what does this really look like from a military standpoint? And what I did at that point in time was because it is now available, and I, I'm familiar with it from other work I've done, I went back and actually mapped out the reconnaissance, aerial reconnaissance that the United States and Britain were doing over denied areas of the Soviet Union and China and matched that to what we were seeing in these UFO reports, which is very interesting um, <laughs> because it's highly comparable. Um, sure. Th then uh, I one of the things that jumped out is if you're looking at the American warfare complex like that, it goes through a series of phases. I mean, at first – uh, there was no atomic stockpile. So there was a what I call a bomb building area. Then there's a era. Then there's a bomb dispersal area. Then the the weapons evolve to hydrogen weapons and they go on sack bombers. And uh, then they go on ICBMs. And what you find if you really look back at the day early, what I think I found is that there was a change in focus. And I guess the simple way you'd say it is the level of UFO intensity correlates to where the weapons are. At, at first, it's where the, where the radioactive materials are being manufactured and designed, and you find it around Los Alamos, Sandia Base, and then you find it around Hanford and Oak Ridge. But then after a period of time, especially by the late 1950s, when the stockpile is built, it, it translates. And it goes out to the SAC sites and to the atomic bomb storage uh, sites at SAC through the 60s. And then it goes to the ICBM sites. So it, it's as if whatever X is focused on, it's where the atomic warfighting capability is in any given period of time. That is that is so actually fascin fascinating. So so at one hand, it seems we are trying to apply intelligence methods to a problem, 
and it seems that the problem itself is consisted of their own intelligence methods too. It is, and 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 I have to say again, I have to be honest. I I I was trained in cultural anthropology, and I understand the concept of projection and the risk of seeing what you know in the data, and, and I'm I'm aware of that, and I. I spend a great deal of time in the book calling out concerns about, you know, not seeing what you're looking for and, and what witnesses to what the psychological constraints are in data and so on and so forth. But in, in the end, I'm just compelled to say in in terms of the of what we know about behaviors and about military behaviors, this core number of, of incidents. And, and again, I'm just looking at. The military side. I'm looking at what Blue Book co- collected primarily about military reports. Um, there's a whole other body of data, as you know, from of, of UFO data, but I'm, I'm not looking at that. But from the military's perspective, there appear to be some pretty clear things that are going on. And, and I think I should say that at any given point in time, it's not like the Air Force didn't realize it. You, you see, in 1952, in the first briefing that uh, Captain Rupelt has, who, who will later take charge of Blue Book, for the director of Air Force Intelligence, he reviews these patterns of atomic complex sightings with the general in charge. And the general sees them, and they're very clear, and he asked him to study them. Later on that year, when the CIA sees the data, it's very clear. You read the quote from uh, the CIA's Office of Scientific, Scientific Intelligence. It's not that other people don't see these. It's almost as if there's some kind of avoidance mechanism in play. Yes, you see it if you look for it, but maybe it's best not to look for it because then you'd have to deal with it. <laughs> Yeah, and since we we just mentioned uh, Edward Ruppelt, the head of Project Blue Book uh, in the 50s, early 50s, uh, there is another great uh, quote in your book. It says, the conclusion appears inescapable that some type of flying object has been sighted. Identification and the origin of this object is not discernible at this headquarters, and it was made but by Major General G. P. Cabell. And I actually uh, I I read the notes from one of the briefings that General Cabell had, and that uh, Rupert was present. I do recall uh, his uh, uh, big frustration trying to win. Uh, uh, with some other colleagues, uh, the win to win the approach to to actually apply more serious uh, uh, research to this strictly from intelligence perspective, like we were saying through through this interview. So this this just brought me back to the to that quote. Uh, I just for for the end wanted to to raise this issue. Uh, let's say from 1969, as we go into the modern era of the documents and and uh, the whole trends of UFOs, uh, I guess there was a difficulty to restrict uh, these uh, type of uh, information, uh, these type of da- data points, uh, because simply I guess as we move more into the future, the amount of information and documents uh, diminishes rapidly. But do you think you are st- still being able to sort of uh, keep the main pattern in line to see that it's still happening and uh, would you say maybe uh, compared uh, with all these uh, periods of times that maybe the frequency went down or we can uh, apply that to the issue of the the documents that we, we can't simply see anymore of course because we are now in the modern era that, that's a great question, and I think the answer is we have enough data and from some excellent researchers who've, who've actually carried it for, for further with freedom of information inquiries. I mean, after 70, we lose track of it from the Air Force's internal reporting, but uh, FOIA filings and, and, and research by some, some great folks, and I, I cite them at length in the book, have given us incident reports. Uh, whether they're incident reports from NORAD 
or incidents reports from SAC. Uh, they've given us a great deal of data from SAC sites and IBCBM sites. And I say, I would say that we can successfully track this trend through 19, through the early 1980s. Uh, and, and I do that in the book. And I think it's very clear through the 1980s. It's at that point in time we lose track of it. And because there is no ongoing Air Force investigation, because it's, it's the nature of the beast changed itself during the 1980s and, and by the mid 1990s at the end of the Cold War. Um, the American air defense, uh, was essentially deconstructed. The radio, the radar chains were taken down to a large extent. The focus became strictly on missiles. And if you're looking for missiles on high-speed ballistic trajectories, and that's your threat, then you're not seeing the kind of UFOs that we're talking about. The interceptor groups were disbanded. Uh, we saw that the attack on America in, in September 2001, there were only a handful of fighters available anymore. All, so we lose track of it for a great number of reasons, and one of those reasons is we stopped looking for a Soviet threat other than ICBMs, and therefore we began to lose that kind of data. It, it's pretty clear that a lot of the high-tech tracking systems, space surveillance systems, may have some of that data embedded in them, but it's very compartmentalized. It's at a national security level. There's no intelligence group that appears to be looking at it on an integrated basis. So it may be there, but we can't see it. So you, you lose the ability to track the patterns. But I will say, just to kind of wrap that up, where I wrap the book up is, it's it's not that we still don't have the interesting thing is that in the 1980s, and I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the with the the incidents from an from an area north of New York City, uh, for a number of years, literally hundreds and thousands of people began observing very low altitude, some daylight, mostly nighttime sightings of these huge structured aircraft craft. We'll call them aircraft. Uh, they had lights all over them. Uh, they were really big. They were really slow moving. Uh, I think and we are speaking about Hudson Valley sightings, right? Yes, we're uh, speaking of Hudson Valley sightings. And this is occurring just miles north of New York City. And the Air Force takes no interest at all. And it, it's fascinating to compare that. If, if you compare that to 1947 and uh, a fairly large number, but nothing comparable and nothing condensed and with those quality reports. So basically what you see is that by the 1980s and 1990s, it doesn't even matter anymore. If it's not a ballistic missile attack or a terrorist attack, it's not on the threat screen. And if once it's reported the Air Force, they simply say, we don't do that anymore. And the FAA says they don't do that anymore. And there's nobody, there's just really nobody interested. So I guess my answer to your question is there may be data and there may be patterns, but we can't see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, I, I guess the, the researcher, researchers will never stand down. It, it's a, it's a really a fascinating, amazing, rich history, and the, the works will continue to be published. And I, I guess as we progress, maybe some new insights will be there. And, and for the end, uh, Larry, can you actually present us uh, the uh, more about your book when it will be released? Where do people will be able to uh, to buy it, to read it, and uh, maybe where they can reach you if you have a website? and so on. Uh, sure. Uh, and, but one, one final concluding statement, if I can. Um, Absolutely. I will say, and you said, there is more research that can be done. I will say that with the number of fantastic researchers we have, if, if the hypotheses that are suggested in the book are real, they would make a great baseline for further research just with the data that we already have. Uh, there are 
lots of studies that could be done. One that stands out is there's the whole area of the apparent involvement of UFOs with uh, radio radioactivity, with uh, tracking of fallout clouds from the nuclear test. There are just several areas that could be explored if we could really get back into it with some, you know, some focused studies. But as far as the book is concerned, uh, it will be available at the end of this month, at the end of June. Uh, it will be available uh, through the publisher, uh, uh, but it will also be available on Amazon. It will be available uh, Amazon internationally. It will be, it's in book distribution, so people will be able to go into a bookstore and order it. Uh, it's in Ingram's distribution. So it should be should be widely available uh, by the end of June. And uh, I do have a, I, I will be blogging about it. I have a Larry Hancock WordPress blog. Uh, up to this point in time, I primarily blog about questions of uh, national security and intelligence, but I'll, I may move to a, a special blog for this one, but it's not set up yet. And I do have a website. It's www.com. Larry-Hancock.com, and that site deals with all of my books that, that have been essentially on Cold War history, uh, Cold War history and intelligence. Yeah, so once again, end of June 2017, the book is Unidentified, The National Intelligence Problem of UFOs by Larry Hancock. Larry, I enjoyed enormously uh, to chat with you and uh, I'm very uh, amazed with your really common sense approach and uh, really clear ground to, to discuss this subject uh, after so many, you know, jammings and uh, interference with really it, it's a high voltage subject unfortunately in the public so i really think we need this uh, great refreshment to look at with really common sense eyes with, with keeping our feet on the ground so I, I really thank you so much for that i've enjoyed it <laughs>